turn in our Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 11, the last verses of Genesis chapter 11. If you're visiting with us, we've been going through the book of Genesis and something of a transition. We're going to be looking um, still at Genesis, in the book of Genesis, but at something of, a, of a, an Advent focus in the life of Abram in the weeks leading up to Christmas. So we're continuing uh, in this study of Genesis, but skipping a few, uh, skipping around a bit to look at Abram's life as he uh, waited for God's promise to be fulfilled in his life, uh, even as we wait to see God's promise of the return of his son uh, to us in his second coming. So Genesis 11 verses 27 to 32. Another genealogy this morning. We looked at a genealogy last week. God narrows the focus of his word once again down to one, even as he did with Noah and his family, now with Abram uh, and his family, as we will see in the week's Ahead. Listen to the reading of God's word from Genesis 11, starting in verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot, his grandson, the son of Haran. And Sarai, his son Abram's wife, his daughter-in-law. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So far the reading of God's own holy word may add his blessing to the reading and proclamation of it this morning. Here we have another set of verses that are often skipped over. Perhaps we just read on and get to the more familiar stuff, Genesis chapter 12, when Abram's life, uh, his call really uh, comes into focus. But we want to see the backstory this morning. We want to think about the backstory as we're thinking about how we are looking forward to God's promise to become reality in our lives, that is, the return of his son. What is our backstory? What is our uh, story as we think about God's promise and what is needed. What do we need? There are lessons to be learned in these verses, and this sermon begins a series of sermons on Abram's life as we prepare again for the appearing of our promised Lord and Savior. It's helpful to look at these verses, not just because they're the next verses in the book of Genesis, but because we're in the same situation that Abram was in when he was called. There's a book by Ian Duguid that says it well, entitles it well. It's he entitled Living Between the Gap of Promise and Reality, the Gospel According to Abraham. I think that's kind of how I want us to, to think about these sermons over the next few weeks. Living in, with, in the gap between promise and reality, between the promise that God has given, namely the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the reality of that even as Abram was waiting for the promise to come to him and then to be fulfilled. 
Abram waited to receive what was promised. He just, he's, in a way, he's like us. He's, he's a model for us. He's waiting for the reality. We're not there yet. This is the backstory. But, but we, we see in chapter 12, and we know the story, that Abram is promised that he's going to be made into a great nation. There's going to be nations that come from him. But he receives that only in part. He sees it only in part. Chapter 17 tells us he does receive or he's promised a son. And then in subsequent chapters, we see the the birth of that son uh, through Sarah, his wife. But the greater reality was still to come. We live with the promise of Christ's return, but wait for the fulfillment of that promise we know it's going to be glorious, but we can only glimpse it from afar. We, all, we, we sometimes ask ourselves, well, when is it going to come? How is it going to come? Tell us more. And we walk by faith, confident of God's timing and of his ways. Where's our focus to be now as we live in that gap? To answer these questions, I want I to, to, to join the disciples on the road to Emmaus. You remember... Why those disciples were on the road to Emmaus. Jesus had just died. And they were certain that God's promise was now reality. They had their king. Jesus spoke like no one had ever spoken before. He taught like no one had ever taught before. And they were convinced that the kingdom was at hand. And then he was crucified. And between that time of his death and his resurrection, they're very despondent. They find themselves, again, back on that road thinking, what was it all about? What what is going on? And they were to learn that they were in a transition period between the ushering in of the kingdom of the last days and the fulfillment of the consummation of the kingdom. And God was giving them a glimpse of the anointed one who was the king. But they were dismayed. And Jesus rises from the dead and he meets them on the road. And what he says in Luke 24 is, I think, helpful for us as we think about how we should look at our reality at present. He's walking with them. They're discussing with him what's going on and they're saying, why don't you know what's happened? This is the biggest news in the, uh, you know, in the USA today. How come you didn't get the head story? What's the problem with you? And he says, what, what news? What are you talking about? And they share with him what had happened. And he says this to them. This is important for us. He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, these disciples listened intently. They respond by saying, we're not our hearts burning within us. After he disappears, they say, we're not our hearts burning within us when he spoke. And what he's speaking of is the reality of suffering before glory, of his own suffering before glory, and of, his, of, that, of that repeating pattern in the life of his own people, in the life of God's people. There is suffering before glory. We follow after him. We share in the sufferings of Christ as we share the gospel, as we live out the word of God before a world that is no friend of grace. 
He's basically saying to them and to us this morning that if we knew our Bibles better or if we paid closer attention or if we really lived in keeping with the scriptures, we wouldn't be surprised by suffering before glory. We wouldn't be surprised by waiting before fulfillment. Well, where does Abram fit into the story? Well, unfortunately, Luke doesn't tell us the details or give us the details of that sermon. But it's hard to imagine that Abram is overlooked by Jesus. He was the man of faith in the Old Testament, the one who was reckoned righteous because he believed in God's promise. He knew what it meant to live by faith in the face of overwhelming circumstances. He was called to a life lived between the gap of promise and reality. The Lord told him that he was going to become a great nation But it wasn't clear how this promise would become reality. Abram had to live on the word of God, the mere word of God. He didn't have anything else. He had to live on that word. Confident, believing that what God said would happen. In the Old Testament, Abraham is is regarded as an exemplary figure. In Isaiah 51, God says uh, to his people in in Babylonian exile that they are to look back to him and to learn from him. There in Isaiah 51 verse 2, the exiles in Babylon are encouraged uh, in this way. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was but one, and I blessed him and made him many. He's teaching them. He's showing them. Because they're in a situation where the reality doesn't seem, or the promise rather that God has given doesn't seem to be reality, that it's not going to happen. And the exiles were to trust in God to deliver them. But the use of Abraham as example goes back further than the exile. His story was written by Moses to provide encouragement for the generation in the wilderness. Here in these first books of the Old Testament, the story is written so that the people might see his example of faith. They knew God's promise that they would enter the land, but they had not yet experienced it. They were still waiting. They were still wandering. For them, Abraham provided A number of things provided an example of faith, but also of what to avoid. Because what we see in Abraham's Abraham's life is that he did not walk straight in all his ways. He was one who would wander. He was tempted by the abundance in Egypt, Genesis 12 tells us. And he goes into Egypt rather than to the land of Canaan. He does not stay there. He was... Tempted by the fertility of Egypt, by the prosperity of Egypt, just as the people were. They wanted to go back, you remember? They didn't want to leave. They, wanted to, they were grumbling, complaining, oh, if we just went back where we had leeks and garlic and all of the, the wonderful the trappings there. They were just like him. The temptation to take shortcuts and to help God out was very real for both of them. To speed things up, to take, to take another path. To go another way. Abram's call to exercise faith in the unseen reality of God's promise against all odds was a challenge for the people of God too. Well, the Bible shows that we're much like that. We're like that. Like the wilderness generation of God's people long ago, 
we have not yet entered our rest. We see that word in Hebrews and it applies to us. We also face the risk of disobeying God, of falling short of God's blessings. There's a warning there in Hebrews, don't fall short, press on, do not turn to the right or to the, nor to the left. Although everything in creation is subject to our Lord and Savior, to the authority of Jesus Christ, all authority having been given to him in heaven and on earth. We don't see that yet, and we have to walk by faith, trusting that that will be consummated in coming days. We need to live by faith, just as our forefathers. We learned last week that we need more than a good family line We saw that all are from the same family, from Noah. Even those of the chosen line of Shem were sinful. Even the earthly father of God's people, Abram, as we'll see in the weeks ahead. Jesus' sermon there on that road uh, there leading to Emmaus was not then to, to go through the Old Testament, look at all the good examples to follow, but to show that there was a need amongst all the people of a Savior. When it would come to deliver them from themselves. From their judgment. And it also gave a context for present suffering. And certain hope for the glory to come. That's what we need to grow in, dear people of God. A growing understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of his sufferings and the glory that followed as the context for our present sufferings. And certain hope for the glory to come. That's the picture that he sets before us throughout the scriptures. That's the picture he set there before the disciples on the road to Emmaus. That's the picture that Moses is laying out to the people as he writes the backstory. They know Abraham's story. He's the father of them. They, They know the story. But Moses is looking to the backstory. He records the genealogy and he records something also that is of interest to this call to trust in the Lord, and that is Abram and Sarai had need. Abram comes on the scene in the genealogy of Shem, there in the end of uh, of verse 26, and then on into this section of scripture that we've just read, 27 to 32. The Lord called him from beyond the river. He'd been serving idol gods. We saw that last week. This is where the story begins. This is where the story begins for all of us. We're we're by nature idolaters. We're by nature those who want to serve ourselves and and to live for other things and for other uh, powers, as it were, other than God. It's where God finds us, and he must come to us, and he must bring us in. We cannot make that promise a reality through our doing. We trust in God for that. What Genesis and the rest of the Bible tells us is that God is at work long before we know it. From eternity, in fact. But here we see long before Abram even knows it, God is at work. Look at what it says in verses 31 to 32. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. 
We often think of the story of Abram being called out of Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. And here what we see is the father is the one who takes his son and his daughter-in-law and his family and moves to Haran. And they don't make it to Canaan. Terah is called to go to Canaan and he doesn't make it. They settle in Haran. We don't know why. We're not told. But for some reason they stop short of where God called them to go. We're not told why they don't make it. For some reason, again, we don't know. They stopped at Haran and settled there, but the idea of going to Canaan was planted in Abram's mind. He knew that this was where God was calling him. He had heard that word and he was, was led by that word. Imagine children, what it must have been like to move from family and friends. Dad says, yep, we're moving. We're going to Canaan. We don't know where the land, the land to which we're going, but we're going. What must Abram have thought? Would you want to move away from family and friends? It's not, not always easy, is it? I can speak from personal experience having moved a lot, but God is with his people wherever they go. And he provides family for them wherever they go. When Abram's father dies, how tempting it must have been for Abram to say, you know, I'd like to, I'd really love to go back to my high school reunion. I'd really love to go back and, 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 and just meet the friends again. Well, he's probably out of high school before he left. But to go back and see my friends. And we see in the opening of chapter 12, God says, no, go to the land I'm going to show you. Don't go back, he says, to the land, and he recognizes what it is, the land of your kindred, the land of your father's house. Don't go back there. Go from there to the land I will show you. Now, God doesn't call everyone to move away from family, but often he calls us to what is uncomfortable, to a place that we would not go unless we believed God was leading Or sometimes we're led by circumstances and we say, God, where are you? And he says, I'm right here. Why didn't you call sooner? What we see as God calls Abram in chapter 12. Again, I realize we're ahead, but we want to look at this and then come back to chapter 11 is that he calls Abram to go to Canaan and he says, I will make you into a great nation. Abram needed God's grace to go and to believe the word of promise. He wouldn't receive that promise right away. And we read, there's another problem, verse 30 of chapter 11. This is where we focus for a bit. His wife is barren. So as he's preparing to receive this promise, God sees, God knows the barrenness. Moses writes of it here as the backstory. He says, before Abram receives this great promise, guess what? He and his wife were unable to have children. How is that going to work when God comes with the promise? The people of Israel knew, they, they knew what, what had become of Abram, but how had it happened? They needed to understand that. Abram and Sarai were unable to have children. Even before the promise comes, God shows our need to trust him, 
to make the promise a reality. And that's our position. We're those in need. If we're going to enter into his rest, we must trust him. We need to be reminded through testing that we need him. We don't always have smooth seas. The tests are to reveal things about our own hearts when the tests come. Well, how do we respond? We learn that we don't always respond in faith, do we? We see that what we're up against is bigger than we can handle, and we need the Lord. We know that we're not always trusting him. One has said that, I think this is a a nice way of putting it, grace grows best in winter. We don't think of, of that as the season for growth. We see that as the season of cold and and dormancy and and even death but grace grows best in winter because when we don't see anything taking place we look to the Lord and the Lord reminds us that he is able to bring life where there appears to be an impossibility it's through struggle that faith gets stronger the Bible sets before us example after example of how difficulty leads us leads the people of God to look to him. You see, in prosperity, we often become sleepy to our need. We often become apathetic, disinterested. We need to be reminded what God has promised, that he can make make it a reality for those who trust in him. In the life of Abram, we see a man who struggles to act in keeping with what he knows, but God is calling them to come deeper. That's what he's doing for us through trial and testing. He is calling us to go deeper, to know him more, to to look deeper into his word, to reflect more consistently, more regularly in his word. The scene is familiar, isn't it? People see a vast enemy around them. We look back. We can go through the Old Testament and find story after story after story of how the people see a vast enemy and they're terrified when they're leaving Egypt and they see Egypt coming upon them. And Moses says, you see that great host? You will not see them again for God will fight for you. You only need to stand firm. He says in Exodus, and God takes care of the enemy Or 2 Chronicles where King Jehoshaphat sees the horde that is against him. He says, they're too great. He says, what what can we do? But we have our eyes upon you. And the Lord brings victory. In Judges, we see with Gideon, he has this vast host. Their, Their troops are as numerous as locusts on the horizon and their camels are as numerous as a sand on the seashore. And God says, I'm going to bring you down to 300 soldiers and provide deliverance for you. To show you that I, I am powerful to save. That's one scene. The other scene is, the people had peace for so many years, and they forgot God. They had prosperity, or they had no hardship at all, and they forgot God. That's the cycle in Judges. You see, we go through this, don't we? The scriptures are filled with the sufferings, with the, with the difficulties that we face, and also the prosperity and what it does to us. Well, before Abram even realizes God is ordaining all the events in his life, Moses records these words to tell the Israelites 
what was happening before he was called so that they would see themselves in the story and say, well, that's, that's where we see ourselves. We don't know how this promise is going to become reality. Looking back helps us learn and act wisely in the present. Moses reminds the people of Sarai's barrenness before he brings them to the promise which Abram received. The need is highlighted before the reality comes. Abram and Sarai would go through the suffering of barrenness before the promised child would come. Their shortcuts that they wanted to try to help God fulfill his promise, thinking that he was, his arm was too short to save. They would learn to trust God through dark times, even as they were repenting of their own sin. Their need, really the need of the people of God, is the stage upon which God's grace and mercy are magnified, where his glory is seen, when he does the impossible. We think of another young woman who would endure great suffering many, many years later in her life, loss of her husband, loss of her son. Her name was Mary. The angel of the Lord came to her and told her that she was highly favored, that she would be, play a unique role in God's redemption plan. But there was also a word that she would endure much suffering. A sword would pierce her own soul is how it was stated to her. She would know suffering before she would know the joy of God's fulfilling of his promises. I don't know much about her, but her response to the angel's announcement gives us insight into her person. When the angel declared God's promise to her, she said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That is the response of those who are filled with faith. Let it be according to your word. Lord, may it be so, according to your will, for my good. Well, then as we come to our final point, what is required for you to live faithfully in this gap between promise and reality? It's faith in the promises of God and in the God of those promises, remembering your need and of God's power to deliver. His power to save. God finds you and he finds me dead in sin. Fruitless, barren, unable to do anything to perpetuate the human race, to carry on the line, as it were, to see life. It is there that God meets us and promises that he will establish us forever, strong, firm, and steadfast. Peter says that in his epistle, doesn't he? He says, after you have suffered for a little while, God will make you strong, firm, and steadfast in his promises. That's the word. We hold on to that. For God cannot lie. He cannot be kept from fulfilling his promise. In this season, when the church takes time to focus on the coming of Christ, we remember God's promise to send a deliverer. That deliverer has come. Now we wait for his promised return. We live between promise and reality We must cling to God's promise and to the God of the promise, even as Abram and Sarai had to do. They had to learn that lesson over and over again, and so do we. But we have this advantage over them, don't we? We have the full story. We know the story. We know how it ends. 
We know how the line will be established forever. Paul writes in in Romans chapter 8, these words of assurance, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, (coughs) along with him, graciously give us all things? God will keep his promise. He's given his own son. Abram had the bare word, I will make you a great nation. We have the living word, even the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself. But we have, before the eyes of the world, only that word. Well, you live on a promise. But we know that promise has been incarnated. The promise has come to earth. God's son, our savior. His promise has been, God's promise has been signed and sealed in the broken body and shed blood of Christ. That's the assurance we have as we look ahead to the celebration of Lord's Supper this coming Lord's Day. God says, this is my sign and my seal. We come to that table as those marked out from the world by a promise. By the promise of God and by faith we partake of the sign and seal of this promise. At the table of the Lord we remember that he died for us. That we who were barren, who were under death, were made alive in him. Unto everlasting life. We worship then in awe of God's grace to speak a word of peace which is impossible apart from his work. The promise and the reality are bound together in Christ, which leads us to say, come, Lord Jesus, turn promise into reality once again. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we see our forefathers and their faith, we see that in themselves they were barren, unable to bring about any perpetuation of their family, so are we. We are those who wait with a word, with a promise, for that reality, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that when he comes again, all suffering, all waiting will be over, and we will come to realize that precious promise, the glory of that promise, the wonder of that promise forever. As we wait, Lord, help us to keep our eyes focused upon your word, which points to your son, the living word, who intercedes for us, who knows our needs and brings them to you, our loving Heavenly Father. Father, we thank you for your love, for your compassion, and we submit ourselves to your wisdom and to your way, to your timing. And while we wait, we sing with our lives. Glory be to God in the highest. For there is peace on earth between God and man. May you be glorified in our lives every day. Amen.